0: Well, I should say, if you're new, uh, my name is Lee. I am one of the pastors here at Cross Ridge, and uh, it is uh, a great joy today to have the opportunity to uh, open God's Word with you. So, I want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you have one in front of you, to Galatians chapter six. And while you're locating that, or while you're turning there, let me just say, it is great to be back. Uh, it is great to have the opportunity to uh, to preach this morning. Um, But having said that, there are also a a few things, a couple things, that make preaching this morning a little bit of a challenge for me. Three things in particular. The first is that uh, I have not preached for the last uh, four months. Uh, I did do one wedding. I preached at at a church on the North Shore one time. But uh, really, over the course of the last 25 years, I think this is... Uh, the largest break I've had from any kind of you know, regular preaching and teaching over those 25 years. So if I'm a little bit rusty this morning, uh, you'll have lots of grace for me and, and all of that. You won't tell me what a bad sermon that was. Appreciate that. Um, the second thing that actually makes it a little bit of a challenge... This morning is that you have been studying the book of Galatians for the past four months. There's been a lot of guest speakers come in, but as a church, you've been engaged in this study of the book of Galatians for the last 16 weeks or so. And I'm just kind of parachuting into the very Tail end of that. And so this book has a lot of great things to say about the freedom we have in Christ and how we're supposed to live that out and uh, and all of that. And I don't actually know what's been said, what hasn't been said. So that's a a second sort of challenge. The third reason it's a bit of a challenge this morning is because the very first verse that we're looking at in this passage, verse 6 of Galatians chapter 6, says this, let the one who is taught the word... Share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, that could sound kind of self-serving, right? Like I orchestrated the end of my sabbatical to come back and to preach on this very verse. Let the one who's taught the word, that's all of you, share all good things with the one who teaches. Uh, If I still had my Mercedes, I think I'd get a bumper sticker that said just that, right? This is how I got this because you... I'm just kidding. Um you want to know the Mercedes story, you can ask me about it another time. But having said all that, I, I, I do want to encourage you to turn to Galatians 6, and we're going to focus in on verses 6 to 10 this morning. Uh, this is God's Word, and this is what it says to us. Let the one who is taught the Word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he also, or that, he, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Well, just five verses for us this morning, but those five verses are chock full of Insights. And what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to three things that we learn from these verses. The first thing we learn is that there is a special relationship between the one who teaches and those who are taught, or the ones who are taught. This is really what verse six is about. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. The word that is translated in our English translations. It's a single word that's translated as those who are taught, or the ones who are taught, or the one who is taught, is actually the the Greek word "catechumenos," and sometimes we will read to you from one of the, the church's catechisms, like the Westminster Catechism or the Heidelberg Catechism. The person who goes through a catechism is known as a catechumen. That's what this word is. See, there's a a benefit for the person who goes through that kind of teaching, who receives that kind of teaching. They reap a spiritual benefit, and in response or reply to that, they share their good thing with the one who does the teaching or the one who takes them through that. It just is a reminder of the importance of sound teaching. Now, again, I know this can sound self-serving, coming from someone in vocational ministry. I know that there are lots of examples of abuses that have taken place around this sort of stuff. I do want to address that. But first, I think it's important to understand the biblical and practical reasons for this practice. Now, some of you come from traditions where the idea of a paid pastor is anathema or sort of looked upon with suspicion. The Apostle Paul, after all, was a tent maker by trade, and he emphasized the fact that he received no payment for his preaching of the gospel. And yet, Paul was the first one to recognize that there is a biblical precedent for financially supporting those who devote their lives to ministry. Paul says this, he says, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Then he says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, the closest we actually come to the Lord commanding that those who proclaim their, the gospel should get their living from the gospel is when Jesus sends out the 70 in Luke chapter 10. And there he says, the laborer deserves his wages. Uh, elsewhere, Paul will say, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The idea there is that as the the ox goes about its business, plowing and all that sort of stuff, it needs to eat, right? Don't muzzle it, let it eat, it'll serve so much better. And that's the same thing uh, with Vocational ministry, as well. There's a a benefit that comes to the church as a result of this. So, there's a biblical foundation for it, and there's also a historical precedent for this. Uh, You know, many of the the key figures in the history of the Christian movement have had benefactors who supported their ministry. So, you could think of Martin Luther. He was one of the key figures in the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, his his teaching really brought the ire of the Roman Catholic Church. They wanted him dead. They would have done just that. But Martin Luther had a benefactor, uh, Frederick III of Saxony, who not only uh, hid Luther in his castle, protected him from the authorities, but also made sure that Luther was free to go about writing his works and translating the New Testament into German. Uh, And without someone like Frederick sharing material benefits with him, Luther would not have been able to do what he did. That's the idea. Now, look, there are lots of lay people who know their Bibles really well. There's lots of lay people who could give a word of instruction and bring that type of, of instruction at times. But there's a practical benefit in the church with a person who can give themselves to this task Without other encumbrances, without always worried about, how do I put food on the table? Now, I mentioned it already, but there is always the potential for abuses to take place within this. I mean, part of what Luther railed against in his own day was the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church, their selling of indulgences, their other financial improprieties. And some of the prosperity preachers in our own day have, have used some of those same type of abuses. Now, I haven't watched the documentary, but I've read enough details to know that in our day, several leaders within the Hillsong Church movement abused the privileges that they were given. Now, Hillsong Church is filled with lots of theological errors, but it was these financial improprieties by some of their leaders and pastors that brought great damage to the church at large. So this verse, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches, is not a license for pastors to live in luxury. But the abuse can run the other way as well. I mean, churches can keep their pastors at sort of subsistence level, or worse, they can control them with what they are allowed and not allowed to say. You know, we pay your paycheck. We'd like you to deliver the kind of messages we want to hear. That's not the idea here either. Paul says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And the word that's translated share comes from the root of a Greek word many of you have heard of. It's koinonia. It's this idea of sharing, fellowship, partnership. That's actually the relationship between the one who teaches and those who are taught. Now, just so you know, I'm not saying this this morning because I'm coming back and, you know, angling for a raise or anything like that. I'm saying it because that's what the text says. And because I can give testimony to it. Look, I am one of the things I, I thought about in preparing this message is just how thankful I am for this church. I'm so thankful that I am afforded the privilege of spending adequate time studying the, the scriptures week in and week out so that I can open it before you on a regular basis. I'm so thankful for the sabbatical I just took where I was able to get refreshed and recharged so that I might do this uh, with great energy for a long time to come. I am so thankful for all of the different ways I have experienced the sharing of good things from those I've had the privilege and the opportunity to share the word of God with over the years. The basic idea is that we have a partnership. That's actually the idea of Paul's familiar words in Philippians chapter 1 when he says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. If you read the book of Philippians in its entirety, you will see that part of that partnership, a large part of that partnership, was their financial support of the ministry, And this partnership runs both ways. So elsewhere, Paul will say this, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. So there's a special relationship between the one who teaches and the ones who are taught. And I can say that I feel that special relationship with you, this church family. And I'm so thankful for it and grateful for it. There's a second thing we see in this passage, and that is that there is a dynamic relationship between what we plant and what we harvest. So verse 7 goes on to say this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. And the principle here is that you reap what you sow or that you harvest what you plant. If you plant carrot seeds... You're going to get a harvest of carrots, not cucumbers, right? I know at least that much about agriculture. But but this is not just sort of a loose principle of agriculture. It is a fixed law in every area of life. You reap what you sow. John Stott said it this way. He said, this is a principle of order and consistency, which is written into all of life, material and moral. So we shouldn't think of this relationship between sowing and reaping to be probable. I sowed this, I I, I probably will get that. But actually fixed. This is what you will get. If you sow one kind of seed, you will reap exactly that kind of harvest or crop. The relationship between sowing and reaping is like the law of gravity, except it's even stronger. It's a dynamic relationship. And I'll explain what that means in a few minutes. The problem comes when we think we can escape the law of sowing and reaping, or that, you know, it doesn't apply to us. It doesn't apply to me. I can live however I want without consequences. And that's why Paul begins here with a command and a statement. The command is, do not be deceived. We might say, don't be fooled about this. And the statement is, God cannot be mocked. The verb that's translated mocked is from the word for nose. It literally refers to turning your nose up at something. You you, you get the idea. You hear this, you reap what you sow, and you kind of sneer at it. You roll your eyes at it. You scoff at it. And this idea of being deceived about this or mocking this actually goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3 contains the account of Adam and Eve rebelling against God by eating the fruit that they were told not to eat. And in Genesis 3, we read this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. You won't reap what you've sown. Notice the two things that the serpent does in deceiving Eve. The first thing he does is to get her to question God's word. Right? Did God really say? I mean, are you sure about that? Second thing he does is to get her to deny the connection between sowing and reaping. You will not surely die. And I would just say that those two doctrines, the doctrine of Scripture and the doctrine of judgment, are usually the first ones to go. I mean, if you want to know where an individual is headed, or if you want to figure out the trajectory of a ministry or a church, find out what they think about the idea of God's judgment. Right? Find out what they think about the connection between sowing and reaping. The serpent convinced Eve that she should think little of this idea, that there is a connection between what you sow and what you will reap, you will not surely die. But of course we know that when they ate the forbidden fruit they did die. They brought physical death and spiritual death to every one of us. They reaped what they sowed. And we shouldn't be deceived about this. God cannot be mocked. We will reap what we sow. This is true in all areas of life, but there are three ways. You can see the connection between sowing and reaping in this passage. The first one is materially. Now, verse 7 gives us the principle. You reap what you sow. The question is, does that refer to what came before in verse 6 or to what comes after in verse 8 and following? And the answer is both. I mean, it's clear that it refers to what comes afterwards, right? Paul's going to go on to develop that principle in the subsequent verses, but I think there's good reason to see that it also applies to what he's just said in verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches, And I think we can be confident about that for a couple of reasons. The first is because these are not sort of independent thought units, right? These are not just sort of slogans Paul's putting up here. They're not disconnected from each other. Paul is actually making a sustained argument, as he's been doing throughout the entire book of Galatians. So if we were to kind of rewind things just a little bit, his argument here is about the connection between the way we live and the results or the outcome of that pattern of living. And I wasn't here for the week on the fruit of the Spirit. Andy uh, led that week. I heard great things about it. But if you go back to chapter 5, just, just kind of preceding this, the discussion prior to this, the end of chapter 5 is really about the contrast between the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Live according to the flesh, live according to your fleshly desires, and it will result in things like sexual immorality, jealousy, fits of anger, envy, strife, divisions, and all those sorts of things. But walk according to the Spirit, and it will produce things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, right? You reap what you sow. And Paul doesn't drop that basic line of reasoning when it comes to verse 6. And he says, let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. You reap what you sow here as well. You reap what you sow in regards to your generosity or lack thereof. Now, just so you don't think, oh, well, I'm, I'm making all this up. Listen to the way Paul specifically applies the principle of sowing and reaping to generosity elsewhere in his letters. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we read this. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, right? If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly as well. And this wasn't a novel concept from Paul. The Old Testament book of Proverbs said it this way One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give, and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. If I were to sum up those two verses from Proverbs in a single sentence, it would be You reap what you sow when it comes to your generosity. Now, I'm not trying to go all prosperity gospel on you, right? You should give so that you can get. I just think a lot of people don't understand this principle of sowing and reaping as it relates to their finances or to their practice of generosity. But this principle of sowing and reaping has other applications as well. We could say that it applies materially, but it also applies spiritually. Uh, Listen to verses 7 and 8 again. Those verses say, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There's that connection again between what we do and the results or the outcome. Sow to the flesh and you will reap corruption. That seems like maybe that should be obvious, but it's not always obvious to us. Uh, John Stott said it this way, this is a vitally important and much neglected principle of holiness. We are not the helpless victims of our nature, temperament, and environment. On the contrary, what we become depends largely on how we behave. Our character is shaped by our conduct. Our character is shaped By our conduct. So, the kind of harvest that you reap in your life, the kind of relationships that you have, the kind of besetting sins that might plague you, the kind of closeness that you experience in your relationship with God, or the lack of closeness that you experience in your relationship with God, those things are the product of the kinds of seed you've been sowing or planting. And if you are sowing to your sinful nature, you should not be surprised that you're making no progress. I mean, just to indulge a little bit in your consumption and spreading of gossip and don't be surprised when you have a series of broken relationships. Right? Entertain sexual fantasies in your mind. Indulge in, your, in a private pornography habit. And you shouldn't be surprised when you reap a life that is enslaved to those things. It was Ralph Waldo Emerson who said, sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. You reap what you sow. And that mention of destiny reminds us that what Paul is talking about here is not just earthly consequences or outcomes. You know, your life will be better if you do this or worse if you do that. He says that the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And he has in mind not just the kind of corruption that we might think about if we think about you know a politician or someone who gets into power and then becomes corrupt. What Paul has in mind is the actual corruption or destruction of ourselves in a spiritual sense. In the book of Romans, we read this. He, that's God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. You will reap what you sow. And that Paul has more than just earthly outcomes in mind is clear by what he says in the second half of verse 8. There he says... But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And that eternal life is both present and future. It's about both the quality of life and the quantity of life. I think there's a couple of additional things we ought to take note of from that half verse. The first is to remember that while the principle of sowing and reaping works negatively, if you sow to your sinful nature or to your flesh, you're going to reap corruption, it also works positively. So Paul has said it multiple times throughout this letter. Walk in the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Sow to the Spirit. And if you do these things you will reap a harvest of eternal life. So how do we sow to the Spirit, as he says here? What does that even mean? What does that look like in practice? Well, if sowing to the flesh means indulging in all sorts of fleshly desires, then sowing to the Spirit means actively engaging in those things that will help us grow spiritually. And this is about our thoughts and our actions. And when it comes to our thoughts, it means that we set our minds on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and not on earthly things. It means that when anxiety comes, rather than filling our hearts and our minds with anxiety, we think about that which is true, and noble, and pure, and lovely, and admirable, and excellent, and praiseworthy. Rather than walking in the counsel of the wicked... We're standing in the way of sinners, We're sitting in the seat of mockers. We delight ourselves in the law of the Lord, and on His law we meditate day and night. And when it comes to our actions, we foster a healthy prayer and devotional life. We seek to grow not just in our knowledge of God's Word, but in our obedience to God's Word. We use the freedom that we have in Christ, not as an opportunity to gratify the desires of the flesh, but as an opportunity to serve others. We make it a regular pattern to gather with God's people at church on Sunday and also outside of that, in formal and informal gatherings. We do those things. That's sowing to the Spirit. It's the things the Spirit desires for us. The second thing to note about the second half of verse 8 is that the result of our sowing and reaping comes directly from the Spirit. So I said earlier that this idea of sowing and reaping is actually stronger. This law is even stronger than the law of gravity. What I mean by that is that the law of sowing and reaping is not sort of like an abstract law or principle that God implanted into the world when he made it. This is not karma. This is not, you know, what goes around comes around. What Paul says here is that the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. See, God is actively and directly involved in the outcome of our sowing and reaping. It's a dynamic relationship. So I said that this principle of sowing and reaping applies materially and spiritually. And the third thing to know, and this is vitally important, is that it applies eventually. Uh, Verse 9 says this, And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. And the reason I said this is vitally important is because it's easy to get the wrong idea when we don't see an instant connection between what we sow or what we plant and what we reap or what we harvest. Again, I don't know a lot about agriculture. Agriculture but I know that you plant the seed in one season and you harvest that seed in a completely different season. So some time ago, we learned that uh, if you buy a pineapple at the grocery store and you take that home and you twist the top of that pineapple off and you plant it uh, in a potting plant and you, you water it, you can grow your own pineapple at home. Now, the thing is, it actually takes two years for you to get a you know, full-size pineapple pineapple in exchange for that. So we were about 14 months into that. You know, give us another 10 months or so, we'll invite you all over and we'll have a big pineapple party or something. But that's how it works. You plant it in, like if you expect that, you know, you're going to go home today, plant that pineapple in the ground, and tomorrow you're going to be using it in your smoothie, you're going to be greatly disappointed. You plant in one season and you reap or you harvest in another season. Don't be deceived about that. Again, this works both positively and negatively. And sometimes people get the wrong idea about sowing and reaping because there's no lightning bolt from the sky when they sin. I mean, I didn't experience any immediate consequences when I made this decision. Therefore, there probably aren't any consequences. That's how you deceive yourself. It's just a foolish way to live. You will reap what you sow eventually. Listen to this verse from Romans chapter 2. It says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Right? Keep your hard heart. Don't repent. Don't listen to what God has to say. All you're doing is you are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. You will reap what you sow eventually. Now, verse 9 actually points us in the opposite direction, right? It points us in the positive direction. What he says here is, don't grow weary in doing good. And that's easy to do, isn't it? This happens when we become discouraged because we don't see instant results for something. Now, I've been praying for that person for a long time. I've been loving and serving my kids. I've been faithful with my finances, but I'm just not seeing any results right now. And what Paul says to that is don't grow weary, don't give up, don't stop. The harvest will come eventually. You always will reap what you sow. Final thing we discover in this passage is that there is a familial relationship between all Christians. And this is what we see in verse 10. It says there so then as we have opportunity let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So this verse tells us that we ought to do good to all people. But we ought especially to do good to those who are of the household of faith. Now, now can that be right? I mean, as Christians, we're called to do good to all people, right? We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. When there's a person in need, we seek to to meet that need, or we ought to. We ought to try to alleviate their suffering, provide comfort to them, or offer some kind of practical help. That's true for everyone. You know, over the past couple of weeks, there have been some pretty devastating uh, fires taking place in the interior of our province. People have been evacuated, people have lost their homes, they've lost their businesses. Uh, some of those people have family and friends that they can turn to, uh, but I was encouraged to see the role that Christians were playing to try to help meet some of those needs. So like Green Bay Bible Camp up in West Kelowna opened their facilities for anyone who needed a place to stay or needed meals. Praxis Church in Kelowna, a church that we're connected to and partnered with, offered practical help as well. The same thing happened a couple of years ago when there were floods out in Abbotsford. Many churches stepped forward to say, how can we help? And that's good and proper. It's part of our calling. Let us do good to all people. But the verse goes on to say, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So there is a priority to our doing good. We seek to do good especially to those who are of the household of faith. Why? Well, you know this in your own family. I mean, you you make sure your family's needs are looked after first, right? Right? I've mentioned before that while there are many metaphors that are used to describe the church in the New Testament, a house, a building, a temple, a field, a body, the metaphor that gets used most often is that of a family, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Here, Paul's language is, we are part of the household of faith, we're part of the family of God. And so... We seek to do good to those who are of the household of faith. You know, this is why that our priority as a church is to partner with organizations and churches that aren't just known for doing good works, but doing gospel works. We want to do good to all people, but especially to those of the household of faith. Now, Jesus taught this as well. Uh, Many people miss this, but if you read uh, Matthew chapter 25, and you notice this, what what Jesus says there in that passage about what's going to happen on Judgment Day, the separation of the sheep and the goats, Jesus says this. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you and naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See, there's a priority in our, this is not just about general doing of good, This is about doing good to the household of faith. And there's a priority in our church that we ought to do that. Now, I want to say this to us as a church. As you think about this this instruction, let us do good to all people. We ought to be seeking this week, how do we do good to all people? But we also ought to be seeking, how do we do good especially to those of the household of faith? There are people sitting around you today. Today who have all sorts of different needs. Some of those needs might just be they need comfort, dealing with a difficult situation. Some of those needs might be material, that they have things they can genuinely uh, use help with. As the people of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we seek to meet those needs. And let's just pray to that end, that we become that kind of church that does good to all and especially to the household of faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, that you have lavished grace upon us, that you have invited us into a relationship and into fellowship with with you and with our fellow brothers and sisters. And Lord, we pray that we would, in fact, be good brothers and sisters to those of the household of faith, Lord, that we would encourage one another in our walks, that we would help each other to, to sow positive seeds, and to reap those, those benefits that you tell us, God. We pray we would become uh, a church that is, uh, continue to be committed to the mission you've entrusted to us, and that, that we would do a good job of, of knowing you and making you known. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.